guys, we're so glad you're tuning into the Apex Students Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Apex Students, and we pray that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. Hello, everybody. How are you tonight? Good. I'm so glad. Welcome to another Wednesday night. I was just, just recently, I went on a walk down memory lane. Everyone come with me on this walk down memory lane. It was, I don't remember the month. I don't remember when it was, but I know it happened. So this is the walk down memory lane that we're going to go down. I was on my way to the movie theater to see Encanto for the first time because my friend Sam told me that me and my sister had to go see this movie because we would love it and we would cry. Both were true things. Both were true things. We loved it and we also cried. And so we were, I was on my way to the movie theater. We got there. We obviously got movie theater popcorn because like we established last week, there are three gifts that are the greatest gifts that God has given us, which are... Jesus, coffee, and movie theater popcorn. Correct. Thank you for... Jesus, coffee, movie theater popcorn. You heard me say it, and I will not go back. So I was in the movie theater, and right before I heard Dolores just kill her verse, and we don't talk about Bruno. Right before that, right before the movie started, I was surprised by a little short. I wasn't prepared for it, but this short, I don't even remember the name of it. I went to look it up, and I forgot to write it down. But the name of the short was something, and it was about a little family of trash pandas. Yes, raccoons. And it was a great short. It was incredible, and I think you guys should probably watch it. I'm not going to spoil it. You should go watch it. But this short taught us a lesson about family generational trauma. Very cool, right? It was a very neat, cool short. It taught us about how like hate and pain and trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. And what a fun little story to learn right before I watch Encanto. It was very, very nice. Very, very nice. Luckily for this raccoon family, though, it stopped, right? They healed themselves of the trauma, of the hurt and the pain, and it was beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful story. Unlike the Book of Obadiah, fam. We're about to get into the Book of Obadiah. The Book of Obadiah also has some generational trauma and some generational hate that sadly does not go as well for these people as it did for the raccoons in this short. So we are about to talk about Obadiah. If you have your physical Bible with you, last week, Jude was at the end. That was easy to find. This week, Obadiah, right in the middle. It's in the Minor Prophets. It's like um, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. No idea what those are, right? Nope. Go to the table of contents. Look it up. If you're on your Bible app, just type in OBA, and it'll be the first thing that pops up. So if you have your Bible app, if you have your physical Bible, we will be in Obadiah for most of this night. So we are in Obadiah in week two of the series that we're calling Biblical Shorts, and we're focusing on single chapter books of the Bible to see what God is telling us with these little tiny books, right? Because even though the books are short, God still has a lot to tell us about them. So let's get right into it. We are out of time, so we're going to move fast tonight. So as I was saying, Obadiah, a tiny book in the Old Testament. It is the shortest book of the Old Testament with 21 verses. And so we're going to ask some questions about this book to get some context about what's going on in this book so that we can understand what God is teaching us through this ancient text. Okay, so first question we are going to ask. What is the first question that we're going to ask? Uh Uh-oh. It is who wrote the book of Obadiah. That is the first question that we are going to ask. So you guys are going to believe it. It was a broski named Obadiah. That's basically all we know about him. Obadiah means worshiper of Yahweh. There was a million of them, so that's basically it. We're like, oh, this was Obadiah. He wrote it. It'd be like if I wrote a book and named it Dave and then said, oh, the author's name is Dave. And they're like, okay, which Dave? Because there's two Daves in the room and millions of Daves on earth. And we're like, I don't, I don't know. So that's, that's who it was. Obadiah wrote the book of Obadiah. 
And that's really all we need to know about it because it's really not as important about who exactly wrote it, but it is important to know that the words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and that we can learn from them. So that's what's important about Obadiah. What is the genre? That is the next question we're going to ask. What is the genre of this book? This book is placed in the genre of prophecy, okay? Hold on. Hold on to your hats. I'm about to get crazy here. So there are 15 prophets that have their own books of the Bible, and Obadiah is one of them. Um, these books are often hard to read because they are filled with dense poetry and super weird imagery. You're going to get in there. You're going to start reading these. You're going to say, what? And I agree. There's, there's a lot of like, what? what's going on in this book? But that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, but they have a lot to say about God's justice and ultimately his restoration, not only for the people of Israel, but for all of us, all of mankind. That's a lot of what's going on inside of the books of prophecy. Um, the word prophet can be a little confusing. So we're also going to talk about this real quick. Most of us hear prophet and we think like fortune teller, you know, like something that sees the future. And that's what we think of when we think of prophet. Outside of the Bible, that is true. Like just fortune teller, like, like that's a prophet. They see the future. That is a true thing outside the Bible. Inside the Bible, it's a little bit more. They sometimes do see the future and they talk about the future and they write about the future. But these were people that had encounters with God. And because of their encounter with God, they were commissioned to speak on God's behalf. So they were like a representative of God or like God's mouthpiece. Kind of like, I don't know, the mouth of Sauron, if you've ever, if you know, if you know. If you know, you know. If not, then... Watch the extended editions. Okay, so they do often talk about the future, but and they often talk about warning God's people that they were in the wrong, right? Often these prophets were saying like, hey, this judgment's coming up because you guys are being so stupid. This is what God told you to do, and you're not listening. So that was most of the prophets. So those 15 books are filled with all of that, filled with visions of the future, a lot of like symbolism and poetry, and it's pretty chaotic to say the least. Um, the prophets were a bunch of weirdos, Nobody really liked them because they were doing a bunch of weird stuff and they were saying like, you're all going to die. And so no one really wants to listen to that. So they were kind of shunned and they were outcasts and yeah, they were shunned. They were outcasts. But then like the judgment would come, right? God's justice would be poured out and the people would look around and be like, you know what? Isaiah told us about this and we didn't listen at all. So uh, afterwards, people were like, we should probably listen to these people more. But you know, in their time, prophets were not recognized. They also did a lot to like, he looked at as weird, like one of I don't remember who it was, but one of them literally walked around the city naked for like three years as like a warning. Like I said, a bunch of weirdos, but they were the mouthpiece of God and God used them well. So who was this book written to? Obviously, this is for someone, right? So God is speaking through Obadiah and he's speaking to people, right? Well, who is he speaking to? Well, verse two says, the Lord says to Edom. So that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Edom, the Edomites. And God directed this towards the Edomites, but most likely none of those people ever heard it. There was a lot going on at the time. There was like some wars happening. We're going to get into a little more. There was war happening. Jerusalem had just been attacked. They were the enemy. So there wasn't like somebody that was going to like march up and like hand them the scroll that was like, God's going to do this to, to you. So really what this was, was more, it was to the Edomites, but it was, it, it, what matters about this is that it was God giving comfort to his people. His people were just attacked, they were enslaved, they were, they were killed, and he's like, hey guys, just so you know, this is how I feel about the people that did that to you, okay? And we're going to find out, doesn't feel great. He doesn't feel great about them. So he's like, this is how I feel about those people, and he's also going to give them like a little like, hey, and restoration is coming, because with God's justice and judgment always comes restoration, because God loves restorative justice. Okay, so let's ask another very similar question. Who were the Edomites, right? Who are these people? So they actually share a common ancestry. Wow, I can't say it. It's over. With God's people. You know what I was saying. So ancestry, there it is. Um, the Israelites, okay? So God's people were the Israelites, and then we have the Edomites. 
So we're going to go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was like the first of the line of God's people, right? This was this guy that God was like, hey, through you, I'm going to like birth a nation. Your descendants are going to be many. And through you, like Jesus is coming. Like this is, it's going to be through your family. This is going to be cool. So Abraham had a son named Isaac and Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. To say that these brothers were, like their relationship was complicated would be a complete understatement. Um, They were twins, but technically Esau was born first, which means that he would get the birthright and like the blessing from his father. So he would get like all the money, all the land, and then like a blessing from his father. I was like, you are my next, like it was a big whole ordeal about what was going on there. And um, one day Esau was just, you know, out being the best because, you know, he's the firstborn male. So obviously the firstborns like me um, are the best and they're going to get all the cool stuff. So he's like out in the wilderness hunting, I think. So he's out there hunting and I don't really know what you do when you're hunting, but I assume you just like cover yourself in pee and sit out there for a while. That's, I think that's it. I think you cover yourself in pee and sit in the woods. That is what hunting is. So Esau was out in the wilderness covered in pee. And then he's like, I, I guess he didn't catch anything because when he got home, he was hungry. So he gets home. He's very hungry. Now, Jacob, he's inside, not covered in pee like a normal person. So he's inside just cooking up a stew and it's a delicious stew and it smells amazing. So Esau walks in hangry, like the kind of hangry where it's like, I don't care what's going on. I need to eat food right now. He was starving. So he gets home and he goes, how about you give me some of that stew? And Jacob looks him right in the face and goes, how about you give me that birthright, bro? The birthright, like of every, so like becoming basically the firstborn male, that's a that's a big ordeal. And Esau's like, "You're right, I'll do that." <laughs> so he swears away his birthright, just just cause, you know. He's like, "All right, I need that stew." So he swears away his birthright, which afterwards, I'm sure, as he's eating, he's like, "What did I?" He's like, you know, coming down off his like angry, hangry high, and he's like, "What did I just do?" Not pumped about it, right? But at least he gets his father's blessing in the end, right? Like he gives away his birthright, but at least he's gonna get his father's blessing. Uh-oh, not true. <laughs> so Isaac, their father, dying, very old, um, probably looked at the sun too much, so his eyes were not working very well. Um, very old, and he's like, okay, Esau, I'm about to die. I'm about to pass on. Go make me food because I want to eat one last time. So, and then I'm going to bless you. So Esau's like out in the wilderness covered in pee again, like looking for food. And meanwhile, Jacob's like, I'm about to also get this blessing. So he and his mom like are like, okay, we should get this blessing. He's like, okay, we're going to do it. So he sneaks in to his dying father and pretends to be Esau. He like covers himself with hair or whatever. And he pretends to be Esau and then gets the blessing. So then Esau comes back and he's like, are you kidding me? Upset to the point of like, I'm going to murder this guy. So then Jacob has to run away. And so then like, that's the relationship between these two brothers. Crazy, right? And you're probably thinking, What does this have to do with the Edomites? Well, here we go. Jacob's family, okay? Jacob's family becomes the Israelites. Esau's family becomes the Edomites. So there are generations of generations of buildup of like, remember when our great-great-great-grandfather did this? So there's like some tension there. And you're going to see throughout, there's a couple times where they clash in the book of Numbers and in the book of Samuel. They're going to clash a bunch. And then this, in the book of Obadiah goes over basically their their last great clash, okay? Their last great clash between these two um, families. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see them interacting multiple times. And so that is where we are. Let's ask one more question. There's going to be more questions. Let's ask another question. What does this book say? So we know who the book is to. We know who the Edomites are. We know that there's some family tension there. But what is the book even saying? What is it even saying to us? What a good question. So this book 
is actually pretty straightforward. When you read it, you're going to get down and be like, I think it means something bad. A little bit. That's a little bit what it means. There's something, there's something really bad going on. So there's, it's straightforward. There's basically, it's broken down into two parts. Accusations against Edom and the coming of the day of the Lord. Those are the two sections. The accusations against Edom and the coming of the day of the Lord. There you go. So you can see how it's split there. Verses 1 through 14 and verses 15 through 20. Now, to get a whole book written about your divine destruction, you probably had to do something pretty, pretty bad, right? pretty serious to get a whole book. I mean, it's only 21 verses, but it's an entire book just about your destruction. Um, and they did. So this is what Obadiah says they did. So starting in verse 3, we're going to go 3 and 4. This is what it says. To Edom, to the, to the Edomites, to these people, he says, You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and you make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us up here? You ask boastfully. And even as you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. Pretty crazy. So the people of Edom lived, lived in the mountains. They had like really cool cliff fortresses. I take that back. They're not going to be as cool as you think because it's very old. So whenever we're like, that's going to be really cool looking, I bet it wasn't. It was probably like made with some clay pots or something. I don't know. But it was in the cliffs and they were up there. So God was telling them like, yo, it's a metaphor. So like you are going to be brought down out of your cliffs. I'm going to destroy you. But also because when you are filled with pride, you feel like you're above everybody. And so God's saying, I'm going to bring you down in every sense of the word. I'm going to bring you down physically, spiritually, mentally, every way. I'm going to bring you down. And it's pretty metal, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty metal. So what else did these bozos do, right? A lot. So let's keep going. Verses 10 and 11, it says, because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and you cast and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. And you acted like one of Israel's enemies. So this is what happened. Jerusalem, which was the capital of God's people, right? The people of Israel was attacked by either the Philistines or the Babylonians. We're not exactly sure which one. We're not sure where to place this. It doesn't really matter. Things were bad. And the people of Edom just sat back and just let it all happen. And um, you may be thinking like, is it really like that wrong to like sit back and just do nothing? Yes, but also the Edomites did way more than just sit back. Sitting back is bad, but then on top of sitting back, they decided we're not going to sit back anymore and they did something. Not the good stuff though. So there is a long list of you should not haves that we're about to come up on. It's, there's a lot of them. So stay with me. Stay focused. It's only three verses, but it's a lot. So 12 through 14, this is what it says. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. The people of Judah, also the people of Israel, there was a split there. Don't worry about it. We'll get to there someday. Okay. You should not have spoken arrogantly in the terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering from... Oh, I think I wrote it down twice. Okay, I'm losing it. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering from calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. You shouldn't have. That's, that's basically what Obadiah is saying, what God is saying to the Edomites. You shouldn't have done any of those things. So it was a little more than just standing by and watching, right? They gloated and joked about the people of God getting attacked and pillaged. And then they rejoiced at someone else's destruction. They were like, this is the best that they're dying. And on top of all of that, they took advantage 
of the, the weak and the poor, and they stole from them. And on top of all that, they killed refugees and captured people and sold them into slavery. So it was on top of that, on top of that, on top of that. So they were not doing some great things here. And it's because of all of that that God says some, some pretty crazy stuff right, right to them. He's like, guess what? You, you're not getting out of here. So God says through Obadiah, he says things like this. He says, those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies will wipe you out completely. So he's like, you know, like sometimes we drop some grapes, not going to drop any, you're all going to die. Don't worry about it. You're all going to die. Yeah, pretty crazy. And he also says in verses eight and nine, he says, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. And then he also says, everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. God isn't fooling around. He's not fooling around at all here. And we can see through these verses just how serious God takes us being prideful and taking advantage of those who are in need of help. If you go back to when God like first set up his covenant with his people, there are a bunch of laws about taking care of the poor and taking care of the widow and the orphan and taking care of the refugees. God, that's like very important to God. That is something that we are called to do as Jesus followers. We are called to do as people of God. And the Edomites said, no, thank you. And they did the exact opposite. And it made everything worse. So now we are up to verse 15, right? We've gone through the first 14 verses mostly. And now we're up to verse 15. And this is when things take a little change. It says, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. So Obadiah is announcing the day of the Lord. So the this version, this is the NLT. It says, um, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all nations. A lot of the translations say that the day, is, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. So the day of the Lord. So Obadiah is announcing the day of the Lord, not just for the people of Edom, but for all nations, for everybody. Um, and it moves from like just the people of Edom to all the nations to every single person. If you're reading any of the prophets, you're going to hear about the day of the Lord a lot. They all bring it up at some point. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is near. This is what the day of the Lord means. So this, this phrase, you're going to hear it a bunch. It, it talks about a day when God is going to pour out his divine justice. He's going to, you know, he's going to come down. He's going to judge people. And then his divine judgment, which might not make sense to us all the time, but, you know, his ways are higher than our ways. His divine judgment is going to come down to the people. Sometimes it's, it's coupled with like crazy cosmic poetry often in the prophets, so it can be a little confusing, but it's often referring to like a time when the Israelites are going to be attacked and taken into slavery, or a time when there's going to be, you know, maybe a comet comes down, or a time when there's an earthquake, or there's, there's a lot of things that it could be referring to. It could also, this day of the Lord, the same exact phrase could be referring to the time in our future, when Jesus comes back a second time, and he judges everyone at that point too. His divine judgment is happening then. So the day of the Lord could be Old Testament time day of the Lord, where it's coming up soon and it's already happened, but it could also be referring to day of the Lord of the future, where we all, when Jesus comes back and we are all going to be, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Sometimes it's both. So sometimes when they say day of the Lord, they're real deep in metaphor, real deep in symbology and like symbols and stuff, and it's both of them at one time. So the day of the Lord can be all of that. And here, it's a little of both. It's a little of this destruction is coming to you right now, but also to all the nations that are prideful. It's, it's coming later on, so you better get your act together. He's saying, hey, you prideful nations that ignore the hurting, refuse the refugee, take advantage of the poor, and think yourselves better than everyone else, your time is coming. The day of the Lord is near, and it's not looking good for you. That is what he's telling us here. It's a 
a little bit of a chilling warning because coupled with everything else that's in this book, it's God does not fool around. He does not fool around with this. So after all this talk of destruction and God's divine justice being poured out on those deserving of it, Obadiah ends on a happier note. He's like, let's go somewhere a little bit more happy at the very end here. And Obadiah talks about the restoration of God's people, of God's people, Israel. He talks about they're, they're soon to come where they're going to come back from the lands that they were taken and they're going to reset up Israel then. But then he's also talking about, he's making like, he's, he's talking about the future when Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and everything's going to be made right. So he's talking about both things here. It says in verses 20 and 21, the exiles of Israel will return to their land. The captives of Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle the towns. Those who have been rescued will go up to the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be king. In the Bible, we often will see God's justice coupled with restoration. In Revelations, you're going to see, you're going to read about like God's coming judgment. But then right after that judgment comes restoration, comes the new heaven and the earth, comes the time where God sets up a kingdom that is perfect in place of all the brokenness and all the pain that we have now. That's it, guys. That is the end of Obadiah. That is, we've gone through the whole thing. Hopefully you understand it a little bit more. Lots of destructive, like destructive poetry and fun metaphors. Um, hopefully next time you're reading through any of the prophets, you can understand a little more. Remember those things like Day of the Lord when you're reading. Um, which brings us to our last question. So what? Who cares? What can I learn from this? Turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, but what about me? What about me? What can I learn from this? All right, a few big, <laughs> a few big takeaways here from the book of Obadiah. So as Jesus followers, this is what we can learn from the book of Obadiah. As Jesus followers, we cannot rejoice in the destruction of others. At first glance, this seems like an easy thing. Like obviously when someone gets hurt or like their life falls apart, like maybe they're like, hey, my mom died. Like you're obviously not going to like look them straight in the face and be like, <laughs> like at first glance, this seems like that's an easy thing to do. Like, oh, don't rejoice in the destruction of others. Um, but it's not going to be as easy as you think it is when you really start to think it through. So Jesus says, talks about this in Matthew chapter five. He says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. So it's a little more tough, right? You have to pray for these people. Like it's going to be easy to see when you see someone hurting to look at them with empathy when you kind of like them, when they are like you, when it's just another kid or someone that you, you know around, or even like if it's a bully in your school. At first, it might be a little difficult, but like, oh, I can kind of get it. Like, we're in the same position. It's going to be a lot harder when it's people that are outside of your little sphere, people that you don't agree with, people that you might see as an enemy. God's telling us we have to take care of them still. We have to pray for them. We have to love them, even if they are your enemy. So Jesus keeps going, all right? Because we're thinking like, okay, well, it can't be, that's still not that, that hard. But he keeps going. He says, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind, if you are kind only to your friends, how different are you from everyone else? Even the pagans do that. On the good and the evil. God is saying that we have to love and pray for everyone. And I think what makes this even harder to not rejoice in other people's destruction and to pray and to love everyone is social media, if I'm being 100% honest. Because there's a certain glee that comes, comes along with someone that you disagree with 
getting canceled online. There is a glee that comes with like everybody posting about like, oh, I can't believe this person did it and they're finally paying for the, what they're doing. There is a glee that comes with it. And I completely get it because I have found myself in that exact same position. But God's calling us to a higher standard. He's saying you can't gloat in the destruction of other people, even if you don't agree with them. Even if it's, that's, if it's that far right person that you hate or that far left person that you hate. Whoever it is, you're not allowed to glee. You're not allowed to be rejoicing in their destruction. He's calling us to a higher standard. We're supposed to reach out, offer mercy, just like we talked about last week. Offer mercy, offer forgiveness, offer the love of Jesus, because that's ultimately what we are called to do as Jesus followers. We are called to pray for them and if possible with them and not take part in the rejoicing of their downfall like other people. Don't jump on the bandwagon. It's a lot harder to do than just praying for your enemies, not jumping on that bandwagon and not rejoicing because God is super into restorative justice and he is the God of second chances. Now, I will say it's not wrong for people to be held accountable for their actions and when people are saying stupid stuff online, deciding as a whole, we're not listening to you anymore, not wrong either. That part of cancel culture is actually a good thing. That's just being held accountable for what you say and what you do. So th there is a, a balance there where it's like, we're not going to put people that have abused their power back in places of power, but we still have to pray for them, but we can't rejoice in their downfall. So there's, there's a tension. There's a balance there between those two things. Okay. So we learned that we can't be prideful. We can't rejoice in other people's downfalls. What else can we learn? Okay, this is the last point, I promise. We're getting out of here, I promise. So God cares for people and wants us to care about them too. You can see it all throughout this book, that God cares for people and he wants us to step up and care for people too. The people of Edom ignored the people around them who were in need of help. They refused and killed the refugees. They took from the poor and in their pride, they thought they were doing the right thing. In their pride, they're like, this is what we should be doing. This is right. This is what we should be doing. And Obadiah warns us that God is going to judge all nations. He's going to judge everybody who does this type of thing. So we have to look to ourselves and ask, are we caring for the people around us? Or are we ignoring things? Um, Jesus kind of says it better than I can. Weirdly enough, I don't know how that happened, but Jesus says it better than me. So he does this a little story in Matthew chapter 25. He says this. I'm gonna, it's a lot of reading, but stay with me. It's a cool story. Then... The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So those are people, he's like ushering them into heaven. He's saying, yo, this is our time. Um, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. So these are people responding back. This is what he just said to them. He's like, what? They're saying this back to Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did you need clothes and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for those in need, you did for me. Later on in the chapter, he says, whatever you didn't do, for those people you didn't do for me. So God is telling us we can't sit back. We cannot sit back and let the world around us fall apart and sit in our little bubble and say everything's going to be fine. He's, he's calling us to a higher standard. Being a Jesus follower is cool. It's awesome. And, it, and, and it's true that his yoke is light because he helps us. He, he will give us peace when there's no peace. He'll give us strength when we need strength. 
But it's also difficult because we are called to a higher standard than the people around us. We can't afford to ignore the people around us because Jesus didn't ignore us when we were in need. So now we have to extend the same grace that he gave to us. Remember last week when we talked about how he's like, if you don't forgive people, I won't forgive you. It's almost the same thing here where he's like, we got something from Jesus. So now it is our turn to give it to people so that they can see Jesus through us and find the hope in Jesus as well. So, like I said, we can't push away the problems. We, we are called to be the ones helping, the ones standing up to injustice, the ones thinking about how our actions will affect others, the ones creating safe places for the marginalized to be seen and to be heard. We are called to be Jesus people. That's what Jesus people do. And we are called to be Jesus people. Now, that can be very overwhelming, and I completely understand, because the world is a mess. And so if you're looking at all, you're going to see that there are wars, famines, droughts, fires, storms, people stuck in the slave trade, people whose minds are so broken that they'll watch the Cars movies just on their own. They'll just watch those movies. The brokenness is everywhere, guys. Like, it's everywhere. It is insane. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. But let me encourage you to just start small. It is a lot and it is overwhelming, but just take a step towards helping people. Help the people around you that you see. We're, I'm going to give you some, some practical advice here, but just start small. Uh, it, eventually, Jesus is going to come and he's going to fix the brokenness all the way through, but he wants to start now through us, through his church. He wants to start fixing the brokenness of the world through his church. That's us, right? We're his church, we're his people. Um, Anyone can give someone food, but only Jesus followers can give someone food and then show them that they are cared and loved for by the God of the universe. So it is our job to see the people in need, help them, and show them Jesus. Okay, Jesus is on our side. It's going to be a little overwhelming. So here are some easy steps that you can do. Number one, have a care kit in your car. We've done this before. We've talked about this before. There are care kits in the back. If you see someone on the, on the side of the road that's in need of food and they're asking for food, that care kit has some food in it. It has things that they're going to need. You can hand it to them and remind them that Jesus loves them, that Jesus sees them, that they are a child of God, no matter what other people tell them. Easy step, right? That's an easy step that you can do. That's a place to start. What else can you do? You can volunteer. You can volunteer at a shelter. You can volunteer pretty much anywhere. Look around. We have a food bank on campus that you can volunteer at and help give people food, okay? Volunteer, that's an easy step. That is a step in the direction of helping people because God will ask us to. So what's next? What else can you do? You can donate. Okay, you might be thinking, I don't have a lot of money. Donate a little bit. Speed the Light is always a great thing to donate to. They're helping people all over the world. Also, you probably have old clothes, right? You grow out of your clothes all the time. Everybody has old clothes laying around. You can donate your old clothes to homeless shelters all over the place. They're always in need of things. Um, also to the Salvation Army. Like Places you can donate. You, you can find something to donate and you can do it. And the last one here is, I don't know, get, get a little crazy. Okay, what's this last step? Get crazy, okay? Because I truly believe that your generation can do whatever they want. They can make changes. I truly believe that. That I think that you guys are gonna step up in a way that a lot of generations haven't in the past. You're gonna see the needs. You're gonna see the hurt. You're gonna see the pain. And you're gonna step up and do stuff about it. So get a little crazy. Look around you. Figure it out. I believe in you. You can do it. So that's it, right? So that, those are some really easy things. Get crazy. Don't, you know, don't think too small, but start small and then get crazy. Now, remember, all of the prophets had an encounter with God that changed them. It made them the representative of God to the people around them. And every single Jesus follower in this room has had an encounter with God that makes you a representative of God, makes you the representative of Jesus. 
There's a time that you finally understood that he loves you so deeply that he sent his own son to die. And now that you have that relationship, you are a Jesus person. You are a representative of Jesus, just like the prophets were. So ask yourself this question. Are you doing it well? Or are you living more like the people of Edom? A little apathetic to the people around you. Obadiah reminds us that someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix everything. And when he comes back, I want him to find me working, doing my best to spread the hope and love of Jesus by taking care of those in need. What about you guys? What do you want to be doing? Let's pray real quick. Dear God, I thank you so much for your mercy and grace that you gave to us first, that you helped us when we were in need. You helped us when we were alone. You helped us when we thought we wouldn't make it. So God, help us help the people around us. Help us to see those in need around us. Help us not to just walk past when, when we see someone in need, when we see someone crying, when we see someone hurt and broken, help us to have your heart, to see people with your eyes, that they are all sons and daughters of you. The people that we don't agree with, the people that we think you know, are our enemies, the people that we low-key hate a little bit, help us to see them as potential Jesus followers, as people that you created to serve you and to be with you and to be in community with us. So Holy Spirit, help us to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this Apex Student Podcast. You can listen to more Apex teachings by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We pray that this message has impacted your life and that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. Jesus.